Well, as a parent, I think you get to see into the world of parents in a way that um, others who aren't parents might not necessarily be able to see. What you notice is that really every parent thinks that their child is special. Their child or children, they're like, they're just extra special. There's something amazing about my child. Uh, exceptional, out of this world. I love my child. The, those parents are usually the ones on the sideline yelling at the ref, saying, you know, no, my son doesn't deserve that, or no, my daughter didn't do that. Right? They, they love their kids and they think their kids are special. We all know someone like that growing up. One of your friends might have had a parent that was a little bit overactive, you know what I mean? Uh, or you might have been that child. It might have been your parents that thought you were a little special and you're still suffering some of the consequences of that now. Uh, but either way, there are issues with that because throughout history, every single set of parents has been mistaken, unhealthily focused, thinking that the sun shone out of their child except one set of parents. Set of parents that we see today are the only set of parents who have the right to think that their kid was out of this world because he was. Joseph and Mary, we meet them in this passage today, and through their son, their only son at this point, their hopes and dreams would be lived out. They would get to live in such a way that that no other son could give them. They would have other children after, after Jesus, but through this son... Their hopes and dreams could come to fruition. This son would be crowned king and named Jesus. But as the passage starts, it's actually the glory of another king that the chapter focuses on. So have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. Luke opens up this second chapter of his letter that's, as Dave helpfully pointed us out at the start of the service, it's helping us to see the, the reasonable accounts of what went on around the life of Jesus. And he records the historical time and setting of what went on. He grounds us firmly in history. This is no make-believe story. It's, it's written, this whole book of Luke, to give us certainty about Jesus, uh, a careful investigation of the eyewitness accounts. And he places these events under the kingship of Caesar Augustus. Now, the purpose of a census, if if you're not sure, uh, particularly in these days, was to count. To count how big you were, how vast your empire was. And it also had a, a second purpose, to register people for tax purposes so that the people in your area, in your empire, could worship you with their wallets. And they could give to you. That's why the kings did this, was to work out how many people they had. And they were to return to their hometowns to do this census. So Luke begins the chapter with the the glory of a human king on display, counting all his subjects. Uh, He's there, this self-proclaimed wonder king, looking at the majestic greatness of Caesar Augustus and his reign over pretty much the whole known world at the time. It's a picture of the king saying, look at me. Look how great I am. But what this king doesn't understand is that he's just a mere pawn. In the hand of God, he will move wherever God wants him. You see, while Caesar gathers the Roman world to be counted to glorify himself, the creator of the universe uses Caesar's pride to make absolutely certain God's plans would be fulfilled. This is part of God's plan. This is what God is doing in his world. He laid it on the heart of this pagan, pagan emperor, Caesar Augustus. And for his own glory's sake, he'd move a family of nobodies into some hick town. 
but exactly the place where God would want them. Have a look at this. 500 years earlier, God spoke these words through his prophet Micah, laying out his plan to do exactly this. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. See, Bethlehem Ephrathah, it's some hick town. Some small little place out the back of nowhere. It's like even smaller than Hamilton, right? It's this kind of, it's this, it's this little, no one really knew it on the map. I don't want to put anyone's town in shame, right? But, but no one really knew where it was. But there was this promise that had been written so much earlier. We've got to not miss the sign. 500 years before Jesus rocked up on this earth, the God of the universe showed his power and control over all things by telling the world, watch this space. From here will come a king. And while the seeming ruler of the world, Caesar Augustus, is glorifying himself, bringing all the praise to himself, saying, look at me, I'm the king of the known world. The true ruler, God, is moving heaven and earth to make the pride of a Roman empire, through the pride of a Roman emperor, to make his word come true. Compare the seeming grandeur of a king to the humility of a baby. God is turning this world upside down, showing us something amazing. The question for us today is, have you seen it? Have you seen how amazing this king is? Have you seen how amazing the plan of the creator of the universe is? Have you got the extraordinary significance of a baby called Jesus? While the human king of the world showed off his grandeur, the king of the world became human. In the humility of a baby. The humility of a baby is what we look at. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. While they were there, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them at the lodging place. Do you see the irony at this moment? In the most insignificant town... In a shed out the back, in the dish of a donkey, lay the creator of the universe. The one who was wrapped in glory before time began is now wrapped in rags in an animal's feeding bowl. Why would he do this? If this is true, why would the creator of all things humble himself, humiliate himself to become part of his creation as as a baby? Why would he do it? Well, I'll tell you one thing. God has a very different view of the world than I do. The idea that greatness is being served is just not true. But that's what I keep thinking. The greats get served. But that's not what happens to God, the creator. The idea that power and strength and numbers will subdue the world and win in the end is is wrong. Power comes through humility here. The news of a baby born in a feeding trough looks weak and small and unimpressive and pathetic. And so often as we tell others the news about Jesus, we look just as unimpressive. The news looks just as pathetic. You really believe that this baby that came 2,000 years ago was the one who made the world? But be sure, friends, this humble and weak message is God's power to offer life forever. 
It is God's power to save. So when you're tempted to think that Christianity or Jesus or the church looks weak and unimpressive, remember this is how our Savior came. Why should I expect to look any different from this? Let me take it one step further for you tonight. If you're a Christian and you're consistently trying to look like you've got it all together, like you're powerful, like you're strong, like, you know, everything's great for me. I walk down the road and the sun comes out. This is my life's awesome. I don't don't need any help. Then maybe you need to take another look at the humility of Jesus. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. I heard a while ago um, about Larry King, the American talk show host. You know Larry King, Larry King show, right? Uh, he, he was once asked, and he's a guy that interviews you know, hundreds of people on, on TV. He said, if you could ask, if you could interview anyone in the history of the world, who would you choose? I'll just ponder that over your heads for a second. If you could interview anyone in the history of the world, who would you choose? You know what he said? Jesus Christ. Interesting. Uh, They then asked Larry, if you could ask him one question, what would that be? He said, and I quote, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. See, Larry King has seen here that something that's actually right for once. (laughs) That if Jesus was born a virgin was was born from some miraculous way if he he, then he would at very least well point to a world that wasn't just bound by sheer naturalism a world that wasn't just like oh there's only cause and effect that, that there could be something else outside this world than what we see and hear and feel and touch there might be a god but more than that it would mean that that god had become human what we need to get very clear here is what this, this thing that we celebrate at Christmas is really about. Isn't just the, the birth of a baby. Oh, isn't that cute? Wrapped in these awesome, you know, snuggly cloths as we think about it here. It's kind of probably not that way, but, you know, some rags. In it. It's not like, oh, isn't that great? You know, we can put it on a Hallmark card and put fluffy ducks around it. And be like, oh, that's, that's lovely. Like, I love this. You know, it's such a great fluffy duck time of year, you know. But that's not what it's about. It's about this. God became human. God stepped into the world. What we need to understand is a few things. But number one, we need to understand the humanity of God. Jesus is fully God and fully human. There's a few things I want to clear up around this view that people have around God and his humanity. Number one, uh, did God, sorry, did a person become God? That's what some people say. Some people say that you know, um, there was this guy, Jesus, and he kind of went, went through life a bit. And then at one point, maybe when he got baptized and the dove came down on him, at that point he was like transformed, like transformers more than meets the eye, and became God at that moment. He, he was God then, but before that, he, he wasn't God. The answer here is no. The first lie ever told in this world was exactly that, that a person could become like God. Do you remember Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, there's a snake. We're going to hear about it next week in more detail as we look at the the king, the snake, and the promise. But the serpent comes up to Eve in the garden. Look at this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. 
The lie was you could be like God. There it is, lie number one, that a person could become like God. And that's what we've been trying to do ever since, isn't it? Become little gods in the world of the true and living God. To center the world around ourselves, to determine what is good and and what is right and what is evil for ourselves, rather than let God do that. Do you know, many of the world's religions actually claim that you can become like God or a God. Uh, Mormonism teaches you can become a God. Hinduism and many Eastern religions all say you can become godlike or divine. New Age spirituality, right? The stuff Oprah Winfrey talks about. That's the kind of where she's at. It's called pantheism or panentheism. The idea that, you know, there's a little bit of God everywhere. That's panentheism. There's a little bit of God in this, these desks and a little bit of God in each person. And that's just the world around us. That, the, whole, you know, the trees have got a little bit of God in them. If you, if you look around, God is everywhere. You know, that, that's what she believes. Um, what they're saying is, I'm not just made in the image of God, but there's a little bit of God in me. I'm becoming God-like. But the Bible has a very different claim. A person cannot become God. It's impossible. can never happen. You see, God is. He has always been. There has never been a point throughout history ever that God did not exist. He has always been there. You can't become God. God... (laughs) has always been there. He is the first mover, the unmoved mover. Jesus didn't become God. So what did happen? Did Jesus maybe then just come into existence at his birth? This idea that God the Son didn't exist before his birth is an idea that's popular today still. Jehovah's Witnesses, they will say that Jesus was not eternally God. Uh, that he was a created being who came into existence at some point in time. Uh, they would say there is a point in time when Jesus was not. Uh, there was a phrase throughout church history when they were debating this whole issue that says, uh, they were going around saying there was when he was not. That Jesus somehow came into existence. But the early church was pretty clear on this. They got together early on, about 325, and nailed this and, and got it sorted. And like, we're very clear on what happened. Um, The conclusion they came to from Scripture was this, that Jesus was eternal. I'll give you the words that they came up with at a a council of Nicaea in 325 AD. They're on the screen. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of of one substance, with the Father. So he was not made, he was begotten. Yes, he came from the Father, but eternally from the Father. Eternally from him. What they're saying is that Jesus is eternal. He had no beginning. So when John, one of Jesus' closest followers, writes the start of the the book of John, uh, he says this, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. It's echoing Genesis 1 on that first day of creation. And what it's saying is before the world came into existence, Jesus was there with God, his Father, and God the Spirit. They are eternal. He has always existed. There was no time when he was not. And so when John says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, in in, uh, chapter 1 verse 14, he's pointing us to this moment that Jesus stepped into our world, into humanity. 
This moment wasn't the creation of Jesus, but the entering of Jesus into history as a man. He didn't come into existence at his birth. Here's what happened. The second member of the Trinity, God the Son, who has existed for all eternity, entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ. That's what happened at his birth. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God the Son became the man Jesus Christ. But then some people go, well, if God had existed eternally uh, beforehand as God, and Jesus was part, was, was God the Son, and then when he became man, somehow he lost a bit of his divinity, a bit of his godness. Is it possible that Jesus ceased to be God when he became man? When Jesus came in human history, he did come as the man Jesus Christ, but he didn't cease to be God. He says repeatedly, I am God by his actions. And he claims to forgive sins. And remember, all sin is against God. Only the, the one who has been sinned against can forgive, right? You know that if someone comes up and, you know, just thinks they're going to be awesome and write on the side, writes on the side of your car with a key, you know, um, so pick Ethan's car, they write, Ethan is awesome on the side of his car. Ethan's like, you're a tool, right? Who, who would do that? Who would write on the side of someone's car that you're awesome? Anyway, and so they say, I do it, I ride on his car, and I do that, and he's like, well, that's pretty offensive. But then one of you guys goes, oh, it's all right, Rowan, I forgive you. You can't forgive me, I've, I've rebelled against, I've sinned against Ethan, I haven't sinned against you. It's offensive for you to, for, to think that someone else can forgive me. See, only God can forgive sin, and Jesus says that he has forgiven sin. He's claiming to be God. And if you want it a little clearer than that, one of the reasons they wanted to put Jesus to death was because they saw he was claiming to be God. Look at John 10, verse 33. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They were clear. Question is, are you? So Jesus is not God minus. He's God plus He's not God minus a bit, you know, like a man. He's God, fully God, plus fully human. So people ask then, is Jesus God or man? Like, what is happening here? And throughout history, people have had all sorts of different views. Some people just say, look, Jesus, he's, he is just a man. We want to diminish his divinity. He's just a good teacher, a moral leader. He helped the poor. He, he looked after the widow and the orphan. He was a really good guy, you know, kind of like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or with an amazing life example. Is he God? Probably not. Probably just a good example throughout history. Did he live without sin? I don't think so. Uh, did he die on the cross as a substitute for our sin? They'll say no. Did he, did, was he resurrected from the death? Again, they'll say no. He's just a really great guy. And one of the greatest guys the world has ever seen. But they deny history. They deny the accounts from secular sources and from non-secular sources. They actually deny the events that have gone on, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And what they're doing is denying his divinity. They say it's impossible. That's just not good science. Good science doesn't say something's impossible. It observes. And good history looks at the effects of what's gone on and the accounts that exist. And that's exactly what Luke is doing here. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's these kind of extra super fundamentalists 
And they sometimes emphasize the divinity of Jesus so much that his humanity is almost lost. They say he wasn't really tempted to suffer. He didn't really suffer. He didn't really cry at Lazarus's death because he knew it was all going to happen. He's just, he's not really like that. He's kind of like an ancient version of Clark Kent, right? You know how Clark Kent, on the outside, humble, kind of, kind of, you know, just, just the clerk from the newspaper, you know, Galilean carpenter, Jesus, Clark Kent, they're probably pretty similar, but underneath, he's got his blue leotard and red undies on, right? He, he, he's Jesus with the God, the superpower, and that's, that's what they kind of think that he's like. During the day, he walks around looking like a, a carpenter from Galilee, uh, and then at certain moments, he steps out and does pow, you know, and these amazing miracles happen, and really... The outer one is just a, just a cover, a disguise of what, what's going on. But both these views are wrong. They don't match up with Scripture nor the claims of history. And you don't just need a balance. He was kind of a bit, a bit man and like a bit God. Jesus is both man and both God. 100% man. 100% God. The Christians debated this in the Council of Chalcedon in 481. Sorry, 451. They got together all the theologians and the kind of Bible college geeks and the teachers and the pastors and they carefully formulated and articulated the Chalcedonian Creed. And they came up with this idea of what they called the hypostatic union. What's that? Sounds like a hippopotamus, right? What's this hypostatic union? Well, what it means is that Jesus is of one substance. That's what hypostasis means, this, this one substance. He is one person with two natures, fully God, fully man. You can't separate the two. There's a union of the two. They're 100% man, 100% God. Like, it doesn't make sense. That's 200%. You're like, no, it's Jesus. <laughs> that's what it is. 100% man, 100% God. You're like, I've never seen that before. You're like, that's right, because there's only one Jesus. And so this is what Christians believe today, given what the Bible says, given the, the, the eyewitness accounts of history, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's unique. He's the only God-man. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means that he's like us. He knows our struggles and our temptations. He really became flesh. He was human. He knows what it's like to suffer, to have pain, to have friends hurt you, to have joints that are sore, to kind of go through life where there's brokenness around. He, he knows what it's like to be tempted and tested to give in. He was fully human. But here's how he's different from you and me. He never gave in. He never sinned. He always did what his dad had said because he knew his dad was God the Father. And he listened to his dad and he obeyed him. He never once turned his back. Unlike you and me and every other human on the face of the planet, there has only ever been one human who has never turned their back on God and his name is Jesus. And that's why we celebrate. That's why Christmas is such a great time of year. And the scene shifts in Luke chapter 2 and kind of to a weird kind of picture of a bunch of shepherds. Now you think, oh, shepherds in a world of agriculture, shepherds would be the kind of popular ones, but they weren't, they were the nobodies. Now the guys that had to sit out with the sheep at night to stop kind of lions and tigers and bears coming and eating. Like, I don't know if lions, tigers and bears all exist in the same place there. But anyway, um, coming and eating the sheep. And there's, there's kind of nobodies. And you're like, okay, again, we get a glimpse of God's view of the current events. Some seeming nobodies. And then look what happens. They get a glimpse of God's view of the world. They see the incomparable glory of Jesus against the backdrop of Herod 
uh, Caesar Augustus, sorry. Uh, and they said that against his backdrop, they see this picture of Jesus. Have a look with me at the incomparable glory of Jesus. Verse 8. The shepherds are standing there, um, as they do, when an angel appears. Now, most people think, oh, awesome, you know, angel, that'd be cool. Be like, hey, how are you doing? What's been going on? Every time an angel rocks up throughout the, the Bible's eyewitness accounts, people are like scared crazy. They just, just fall to the floor, freaked out. And it's not kind of like the, oh, this is cool. It's just like scary stuff going on. And, and so they are overcome with fear. They're like, whoa, what is this? And then the angel delivers his message. By the way, angel just, angel just means sent one. Um, so someone who's come with a message uh, and he delivers this message and the word in the original is the word euangelion, which is where we get the word evangelical. What it means is it's the gospel. It's the news, good news, momentous news, amazing news. That's why we called Auckland Evangelical Church because we're a church that's excited about the news of who Jesus is and that news gets announced right here, right now, Luke chapter 2. The angel delivers the news and then in the face of the glory-seeking Caesar, God turns up the lights and the sky is lit. Look at this, Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. The sky is lit up. And when it says this with heavenly hosts, that's kind of a nice way of saying God's armies. That's what the heavenly hosts were. The, the sky is lit with the armies of angels upon angels upon angels. If the shepherds weren't freaked out already, how are you going to feel now when the sky is just... Poosh? When I was about 16, um, we went on, on a trip with some exchange students um, around Australia. And we're in the middle of Australia. Where there's literally nothing there, right? We went through Ayers Rock and... It's just, you can't, it's just totally flat everywhere. There's just, just red dirt and a few bushes and just poisonous monsters crawling around. That's about it, right? And, and you're just there and it was just, so we're in the middle of nowhere. And I remember waking up, hearing a bit of noise one morning. It was before, it was before dawn. And um, a couple of people said, oh, come look at this. And we walked outside the tent, like no lights for like hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of kilometers. Like no, just, we're on this cattle station. Anyway, we're sitting there in the middle of Australia, red dust everywhere. Walk out in the morning, and the sky is just lit up like a blanket with stars. I, I got a photo that I found. It's the closest thing I could I could see. Right, so you can't really see, but you know, imagine like that's what it looks like. You couldn't see the Milky Way that clearly, but all just the stars were like everywhere. It just went from from horizon to horizon with stars spread. It's one of the most amazing sights I've ever seen. It was so amazing. Now imagine that picture, but instead of seeing lights reflected from the sun, you saw light for the sun, God's sun. And what covered the sky wasn't some distant rocks reflecting that light, but people, real living people, angels glowing, lining up the sky like an immeasurable army, lined up in their battalions as far as the eye can see. Imagine the warmth from the light, the brightness, the glory, the shine. Then comes the sound. Glory to God in the highest. Booming from the sky above. And peace on earth to all people he favors. What a sight. What a moment to have been there that day when God went, I'll show you my glory. Caesar Augustus. Because this news, this day, 
is the most important day in history. The moment God became flesh. The moment Jesus turned up. Listen to the news. Verse 10. But the angel said to them, to these shepherds, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a saviour who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. The message that came directly from God is news for you, to these shepherds. The waiting is over today, not tomorrow, not in six months. See, ever since God said to Satan that he would raise up a descendant of Eve who would crush Satan's head, we've been waiting for a deliverer. Ever since God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 that from your seed would come one who would bless the whole world, we've been waiting. Ever since God said to David that one of his sons would come on the throne and rule forever, we've been waiting for that son, but he has not come. Ever since God spoke to Micah 500 years earlier in chapter 2, we've been waiting for this moment, for this day. No more waiting, no more wondering. Today, says the angel, today a saviour has been born. In our world today of kind of codependent relationships, where we have this incessant drive for significance in our careers, in our social status, when we pursue money and the idealism of politics, everyone today is looking for a saviour, looking for someone to rescue us out of our brokenness, to to, to kind of put our lives back together or to, to kind of find something that will give us identity and give us some sense of purpose and worth. We're looking for a savior. The whole world is. We find it in pleasure, in sex, in material possessions, in cars, in status, in career progression, in so many different areas. We find something to give us worth. But on that day, the savior was born. The one that we truly need. See, we all recognize we are broken. We all recognize we're looking for something. And on this day, God made it clear to these shepherds, these nobodies in this field, that God had turned up in person. God came so we could know him and not miss him. And the question for us as we sit here on, behind the pen of Luke as he's gathered this information of what went on is, have you seen God's glory revealed? Brighter than the brightest star, louder than the loudest thunder, larger than the largest army, is a baby who looks like a nobody. Who's laughed at and mocked, relegated to the back shed in this hick town outside of, you know, who knows where. To the world around us, this is just, at best, a a nice moral story, isn't it? But what happened was that God brought in an event that outshone the sun and filled the sky with multitude upon multitude of armies, the messengers of God. And here is his message. Here is my glory. Here is my peace. Here is my favor. If you're looking for life, here he is in that donkey's dish. If you're looking for peace, If you're looking to end the war, if you're looking for forgiveness, if you're looking for life, here he is. And his name is Jesus. Have you seen him? The amazingness of the night that lit up the sky wasn't light. It wasn't the armies. The amazing thing that night was words. 
simple, plain, clear words. Today, a saviour who is the promised king is born, wait for it, for you. For you. That's extraordinary. Why did Jesus come in the flesh and die for us? Because it was for us. I'm amazed that a wretch like me, someone who is so often self-absorbed and self-focused and arrogant and rebellious and kind of deserving of death and judgment and hell in the end, because I've rejected my God. I'm amazed that for me, God would become man so that I could be forgiven. For unto you a Savior is born. Jesus came bringing you salvation. Peace with God. Forgiveness. Life forever. When my greatest need is filled, what what more could I want? What pursuit of life could be more important? What career could be worthy of diverting my attention away from this one? What relationship could be more significant that it means I should walk away from Jesus? What possession could be more satisfying in life than God the Son come for me, died in my place? What in this life could possibly be taken or would warrant taking my eyes off Jesus even for one second? The answer is nothing. Nothing. On that day, a saviour who is the promised king was born for you. What's Christmas about? Christmas is a wonderful reminder of what God has done for us in sending his son to come in our place. Christmas is a great time to reorient our lives around what should be praised and lived for and worshipped and glorified and it's not us. We cannot become gods. We are not gods of our own lives. Jesus is that God. So don't you think it's time to quit living for short-lived pleasure? Don't you think it's time to quit pretending that we've got everything covered? Don't you think it's time to fall on our knees and surrender our lives and our priorities and our dreams and our all to the one who is the Savior and the King? That is what Christmas is about. Hear the angel voices. O night divine. O holy night when Christ was born. What a privilege we have to come to this king. If you come along tonight and you're not someone who calls yourself a Christian or you haven't trusted Jesus with your life, then I want to say, check out the history behind this guy. Don't go away and just ignore it. Spend some time saying, is this true? It's too great a thing to gamble your life on that it's false without looking at the evidence. And if you are here going, actually, I think Jesus is legit. I think he's the real deal. Then why don't you join me figuratively and fall on your knees before the glory of our God and live for him in all that we do. That is what Christmas is about. Let's pray. Father God, we are so, so thankful that you sent your come to be your son to become flesh for us. We thank you that we can sit here tonight amazed that Jesus would become human so that he could die in our place, so we could be forgiven and know you. 
Lord, we confess that so often we live lives pointing to ourselves, thinking we are the center of the universe. And we fail to recognize the amazing glory and honor of the God who made all things who has come. Help us to put you at the center of our lives. Show us where we're living for so many things we shouldn't. And bring us to come and trust in what Jesus has done in our place so that we can be forgiven and call you our dad. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.